Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today's Wednesday, July 25th, 2007, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we will have an opportunity to discuss an article published in the July 2007 issue of Critical Care Medicine entitled, Knowledge Translation in Critical Care, Factors Associated with Prescription of Commonly Recommended Best Practices for Critically Ill Patients. Our discussants today are Dr. Roy Ilan, the lead author of the article, as well as Dr. Carolyn Beckus, MD, FCCM, the author of an accompanying editorial. Dr. Alon is an assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, and Dr. Beckus is Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Cooper Health System in Camden, New Jersey. She also served as Chancellor of the American College of Critical Care Medicine from 1991 to 1994 and was President of SCCM from 2000 to 2001. The reference for this article is Critical Care Medicine 2007, Volume 35, pages 1696 to 1702. And again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be with us. Why don't we begin uh, by asking you some questions, Dr. Alon. The, the purpose of this study was to determine which factors were associated with the prescription of best practices in the ICU. And I was wondering if you might begin by taking a few moments to talk about how you and your group came up for the idea for the study and perhaps how the data was collected and, and how you determined which best practices to look at. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I must say that uh, during the, uh, or the, this study was done uh, in Sunnybrook Health Science Center in, in Toronto, and then during the time um, of the study, I was a clinical fellow there uh, doing my fellowship in critical care medicine. Um, I, I think that what triggered this, uh, this study was the report by the ARC, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, uh, in 2001 when they uh, performed quite a, a comprehensive uh, review of the literature and trying to come up with uh, suggestions for uh, evidences that had uh, good um, good support uh, to um, uh, to implement them <coughs> widely. Uh, and uh, the trigger here was that uh, the ARC report is summarizing, concluding with 11 practices that had uh, the highest uh, strength of evidence to support their implementation. And among these uh, 11 practices, 10 were directly related to critical or critically ill patients. Uh, so I think this, uh, this was what caught the eye of, uh, of Bill Siebold, uh, who passed away, unfortunately, last year. Um, and um, and he, his thought was, uh, was um, okay, let's see how, how good we are uh, in Sunnybrook. Uh, are we really implementing all of these um, uh, best practices uh, for our patients? Uh, so, so this was the beginning, and uh, and this so the report was quite 
2001, uh, and uh, just around the publication of this report, and uh, let's say a couple of years afterwards, um, there was a, a series or a line of um, of publications that um, that looked and described very well designed uh, randomized studies trials that looked at and described very helpful interventions for critically ill patients. So uh, interventions that uh, were not mentioned in the ARC report, uh, things like uh, uh, transfusion practices and thresholds, uh, like uh, lower tidal volume ventilation for patients with acute lung injury, uh, the, uh, the issue of insulin therapy, and a few more. So what we try to do is to, uh, with, with a quite thorough literature review, to try and see... Um, try to gather this uh, group of, of evidences or practices with, with good evidence to support their implementation to see how well we were doing. And then to try to, to also see if there, are, there were any, uh, any factors that were associated with, uh, with better implementation or prescription. So I think this was the, uh, the basis. Uh, the, the nature of the study was, was in a, a retrospective uh, descriptive or observational study that was based on uh, quite a comprehensive chart review. Uh, we looked both at the uh, the print and the electronic medical records, and we um, abstracted all the information that was uh, was needed and relevant for for our needs. Dr. Beckus, would you like to make some sort of overview comments uh, over the years in terms of going from large randomized trials to the bedside and and having seen seen that kind of translation occur and and some of the obstacles? In general, I would say that we traditionally have tried to educate physicians on best practice through didactic teaching sessions. <clears throat> That's been the usual methodology for uh, physician continuing education, and most of us are comfortable with it. However, um, it's become quite clear that this is not an effective way to change physician practice. Um, it's a very passive way of education, and more um, useful ways are more active interventions, including reminders, checklists, things like order sets, um, and the use of bundles, which trigger physicians' memories. So I I believe that the the most effective ways and moving forward we need to find more effective ways of educating physicians about general about best practices um that have been identified through research um and these will include a lot of uh, innovative uh, methodologies um not only the ones that we've named but also things like simulation um and uh having physicians actually do analysis of their own data and giving them CME credit for doing things like that um in terms of the, the next part of the interview, I just wanted to mention for the listeners the the ones quoting from your paper the, that you ultimately the, that you ultimately looked at were uh, VTE prophylaxis, perioperative antibiotics, GI stress ulcer prophylaxis, early enteral nutrition, some form of a hemoglobin hematocrit red cell transfusion strategy, perioperative tight glucose control, perioperative beta blockers for appropriate patients, low tidal volumes for acute lung injury, ARDS, uh, specialty mattresses for patients admitted greater than three days, daily sedation vacation, and low-dose steroids for septic shock. And uh, the two questions I had were, again, 
how did you focus on these? And I know you spend some time in your paper discussing that particular issue. And then looking through the paper, it sounds uh, like a fairly monumental task. How did you decide, um, you know, how many charts to go through? And I know in the paper you talk about some of the difficulties figuring out if, in fact, some of these interventions were performed. Yeah, so uh, I think uh, since it, uh, the design of the study was a, a retrospective uh, uh, chart review, so uh, I think what guided us uh, from the get-go was, uh, and, and we did a, a, a little pilot uh, before we uh, we started this study, uh, we wanted to uh, to be sure that we will be able to, um, to abstract all the relevant data uh, to be able to uh, at least say uh, whether a spe- any specific practice uh, has been prescribed or adhered to. Um, so uh, we we had to exclude a few practices uh, that we, we didn't feel that uh, we were able to retrospectively uh, identify their um, uh, implementation. So things like uh, barrier precautions for uh, for central line insertions that you I mean you can never know what really happened at the bedside retrospectively. Uh, things like uh, informed consent or the process of informed informed consent. Uh, if if you weren't there, you you wouldn't know, and it's it's never really documented to to in detail. Um, so uh, so things like that. Uh, and then we excluded a few practices that we we basically. Uh, we knew that we didn't have in Sunnybrook in, in our ICU at the time of the study, so things like uh, antibiotic-coded intravenous catheters uh, or uh, ultrasound guidance for uh, central lines. So we know we didn't have uh, an ultrasound machine in the unit uh, during 2003. Uh, this has changed later. So um, we, we tried to stick to these um, or examine these uh, practices that we, we knew based on our pilot, that we were able to uh, abstract all the relevant um, information um, uh, and, and to get to know if they, they really were prescribed or not. Um, and uh, I think this was the main issue here. And it said from the, your paper that you went through, it says uh, 100 randomly selected patients. Is that about yeah, how? Yeah, that's right. So we, we, we tried, it, I think from the statistical analysis, it was a, a pretty difficult thing to do. Uh, because we had really a long list of, uh, of practices or interventions to look in at, um, and for some of them it was uh, not completely yes or no, but we had some also some uh, uh, eligibility criteria, and um, and then we had some um, uh, contraindications. So uh, again, in the pilot study, we tried to go around it and uh, and try to, um, uh, to to take the rule of uh, no some between 10 and 25 subjects independent variable, um, and uh, we figure out eventually that uh, a number of 100 patients uh, would be um, uh, sufficient to show, first of all, to show, um, uh, to describe the, the patterns of prescription, um, and afterwards, hopefully, to, that, that we will be able to show some associations to, uh, to variables or to factors that we, we thought be hypothesized ahead of time that may be or will be associated with um, uh, adherence or prescription. So we ended up with 100, 100 randomly selected uh, uh, charts. This is with the help of uh, Claudio Martin from the uh, CCRnet uh, in London. Uh, so we had these charts uh, uh, pulled randomly, um, and this gave us, uh, gave us a good advantage of having this um, 
uh, no random list of patients that, that uh, spent some time in the ICU, in our ICU throughout 2003. And how did you handle situations where you literally couldn't determine if an in, if a procedure or an intervention was being performed? Um, I think that after the, uh, the short piloting period, uh, we were already able to, and kind of with, uh, as, as we as we went with this uh, process, we were able to uh, to clarify. Um, I think pretty well uh, each and every um, uh, category or, or practice um, because because we basically eliminated or um, uh, excluded interventions that were really difficult difficult to know. So the concept was you you chose interventions where you could fairly definitively get a yes or no answer on for each particular patient. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Because we, we reviewed both the uh, it was a pretty uh, comprehensive chart review, so we, we look really carefully at the, um, uh, the the notes of the doctors, the, the nurses' notes, uh, the flow sheets, uh, all the, uh, the the blood work and the tests. So anything that was documented in the chart uh, was reviewed, um, doctor orders, of course. So I think, I feel that at the end of the day, we were pretty, um, uh, we were able to ascertain uh, whether any of these interventions or practices was um, uh, at least prescribed. Uh, so it's uh, maybe one of the caveats of this study. We were not sure if they were performed, and, and definitely we, we cannot say anything about um, any any thought process about whether it's uh, uh, it, the, the, the doctors thought it was uh, needed or not or had any, any thoughts about it at all, but we can only say and discuss and uh, um, um, and, and um, no, based on kind of discussion here about uh, what was prescribed. I'd like to move, if I could, next uh, in terms of the major focus here is Table 4. And again, this is a, uh, a radio situation, so I'm going to have to describe it a little bit for the listeners. But it's very important. And basically, this seems to be the real meat of your uh, results here, or some of the most important, where you show of the patients who were eligible to receive a certain therapy and there were no contraindications, you say what percentage of those patients actually got the therapy and you have it in order of uh, how likely were they to receive it. And as you go all the way from 95.3% for thromboembolism prophylaxis down to 8.3% for interruption of sedation. And I thought... uh, if, if first you, Dr. Alon, and then perhaps you, Dr. Beekes, were interested in uh, Dr. Beck is making some comments on that wide spectrum of the percentage of times that they're getting the intervention. Yeah, sure. So, so um, I think basically uh, this is what we found <laughs> in in our ICU uh, during 2003, uh, and um, and then we uh, we tried to compare it to findings of of others that uh, looked. So I think. Well, Maybe it's time to mention. I think that the highlight of this uh, of this study uh, is that um, I think this is the first time, at least to our knowledge, that uh, anyone has taken a look or tried to describe a wide range of um, uh, best practices or highly recommended practices for critically ill patients. Um, and uh, and then we see this this wide wide range of uh, of implementation or utilization. And um, uh, for, for some of these practices, there have been several studies before, and we tried to compare them, and, and I think that the numbers were about the same. So, so fairly um, uh, pretty good um, uh, adherence to uh, from 
prophylaxis for uh, surgical procedures, uh, stress also prophylaxis, which uh, has been looked at, and uh, uh, enteral nutrition that uh, had some variable uh, levels of uh, of uh, adherence or prescription. Uh, so I think for for the, the the practices that have been described before by others, uh, I must say much larger surveys or uh, in, uh, examinations and descriptions. Um, the, the results were about the same. Uh, and then there's this uh, uh, range. It, it goes no as, as low as no eight, eight point something percent for the interruption of daily interruption of sedation. Um, and I think there's a combination of uh, of both the, the interventions that we had in our ICU um, to um, to make sure that people adhere uh, and uh, and prescribe certain or specific uh, practices, uh, things like uh, TE prophylaxis and nutrition, so uh, which we we can discuss later. Um, and uh, and and probably no level of of knowledge and appreciation and level of. Uh, uh, feeling uh, uh, practitioners feeling comfortable with ordering uh, certain practices or not ordering others, uh, and and very much also about I think local culture, and uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that if uh, if if you do it in in another intensive care unit in in another geographical place uh, with other cultural um, or, or local culture um, and uh, and local leaders, uh, you may find uh, different results. So this is what we found in our unit. My hypothesis is very similar, <clears throat> except that I, I would say that the things near the top of the list where there's pretty good compliance are interventions which are used traditionally, have been used for a long time, are well recognized by most practitioners, and they're very comfortable with it. things like DVT prophylaxis, ulcer prophylaxis, giving people nutrition. Uh, they're pretty well accepted, well taught, talked about frequently, whereas things like ordering specialty mattresses, I would dare say many physicians don't understand what the indications are and the contraindications, and it's not something that's seen a lot in our literature. Also, the interruption of, interruption of sedation, while it's now being talked about, is not something that physicians traditionally have had on their radar screen. So that's a new thing that we need to think about. So I suspect that uh, some of uh, the variability um, relates to how new the intervention is or how um, comfortable physicians are with the intervention. And uh, and one question that I would have sort of representing intensivists is uh, some of these, even in the short time since I've finished fellowship, the pendulum is swinging back and forth on whether or not it even should be an official right answer. And maybe, Dr. Beckus, if you could comment on that as people proceed through their critical care careers. So you say something like steroids for septic shock. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I finished my fellowship in 02, and it is becoming less and less clear that that's something important to be doing. And and why don't you take a few moments and talk about that, having seen pendulums swing back and forth for this? You know, how do you know what the right answer is for any given day? I think you've hit the nail on the head with the steroids. I, I, I while, while Dr. Alan was talking, I was looking at the list again and noticing that the steroids were pretty low on the list. And I think you've hit the nail on the head with the explanation uh, many years ago, uh, steroids were the thing to do for septic shock, um, and then um, the literature suggested it 
that, that these high-dose steroids did not have a role and they were completely out of fashion for a while. Now they're back again. Now the literature is somewhat ambivalent. So I think that physicians um, aren't clear on any given day whether the the steroid intervention is really useful or not. And, and I, I would suspect that that's the reason that's fairly low on the list. Um, other interventions, I think uh, the low-volume ventilation um, is fair, fairly well uh, established through the ARDS network, but I think that still um, many physicians have not internalized and uh, made it a part of their daily practice. Right, and I and I, I would like to spend just a couple more minutes before we talk about some of the final important things you found is, I mean, there's a difference as you said very, very clearly, I think, of convincing the average critical care practitioner that my patient should probably be on sub-Q heparin versus what it takes to make sure of implementing a low tidal volume protocol that many people still, despite the data, aren't convinced of. And, and, and that's, I think, harder to go from these large randomized trials to implementing it in a local ICU um, because there's sort of a leap of faith there um, and maybe if you'd like to talk about that, you know, why that that is still only 53 point, uh, or I guess 50, yeah, 53%, something well, like the that. The things that you've used, the low-volume ventilation and the specialty mattresses, um, also involve other members of the healthcare team. It's very easy for a physician to come by and write an order for DVT prophylaxis, and it gets done. But the interruption of sedation involves a change to a system. Somebody has to decide at what time of day we're going to interrupt the sedation. Is it during the nighttime? Is it during the morning? How does it impact nursing report? You know, you don't want people waking up in the middle of a report, so you have to time that. The specialty mattresses, many institutions have programs which decide who can have the mattress. The physician really is often not the decision maker. Uh, and the low-volume ventilation requires a lot of give-and-take with respiratory therapy. So some of these interventions, which are implemented less frequently, um, it, it involve other people, and that may be why they haven't been implemented quite as rapidly uh, and might not be utilized as consistently. So just to reiterate for the listeners, because I think it's important, is one is uh, areas where... There may be important data, but a lack of consensus within the critical care community from a clinical standpoint. And second, because some of these interventions are often quite complex, require systems to be implemented properly, and are a uh, require members of the healthcare team to be working together, where the physician may be only one part of that. Um, and I, that sort of segues nicely into the other uh, important results from this, where you found in terms of doing a multivariate analysis, that the uh, variables that were associated with getting things prescribed uh, properly were, one, having standard order sets, two, having a specific consulting service, and I'd like you to expound upon that if you, little, if you could a little bit, because I know that seems to be an issue with your uh, VTE prophylaxis, and then interestingly, finding that the sickest patients were the least likely to be prescribed some of these commonly recommended best practices. So, uh, Dr. Alon, if you'd like to take over from there. Yeah, um, and maybe I can start with the multiple linear regression uh, model that we uh, uh, we developed. So um, it's it's uh, it's mainly about the uh, um, 
uh, severity of illness. So the Apache 2 scores uh, that were found to be um, um, significantly associated with uh, with decreased uh, prescription of best practices. So uh, we we found something like that for each uh, point increase in the Apache 2 score. There was a uh, 1% decrease in the uh, uh, likelihood or proportion that patients uh, received best practices. Um, and uh, we were making a discussion here that, uh, uh, and this is something that we, we haven't discussed yet in, in uh, today, uh, sick patients, uh, or let's say the ICU is a complex uh, and, and very busy place, sick patients present uh, uh, multiple problems, clinical problems and others. Uh, and I think that the... Uh, the, the physician in the ICU uh, or doctors in the ICU are usually um, uh, drawn to deal with the uh, acute problems, with the life-threatening issues, uh, with uh, what, what should be done to, to keep this patient alive. Um, and if we go through the list of, uh, of the best practices that we looked at, um, many of them have uh, preventive uh, nature. Um, and so I think it's not surprising, and um, uh, probably if, if you ask physicians or if, if you test knowledge, you'll see that physicians are aware of, uh, of all of these uh, knowledge, and they can, uh, they can even uh, tell you exactly when it was published and what's the, uh, and all the, the downsides and the benefits and so on. Uh, but when it comes to real life, uh, I guess that knowledge is not enough. Uh, and um, uh, because we are... We have so many things to do. We are busy. We have uh, distractions and so on. We may forget. Um, so, and probably I guess this is why when you have a a specialty service uh, which is coming every day to the unit to see all the patients in our institution it was the uh, the thromboembolism prevention service, uh, which is composed of uh, of world leaders by the way of of DVT prophylaxis, you know, people like uh, Bill Geertz and, and and his colleagues. Uh, that come to see these patients on a daily basis. All the trauma patients uh, are seen by them, uh, and this is on top of the um, of the orders or the um, admission standard admission order set that we have, uh, which also uh, includes this practice. So I think this, it's not surprising that with this um, level of support and encouragement, uh, this specific uh, intervention will usually be performed. So we have you no know, a, a rate or an adherence rate of greater than 95%. Um, but it, it's not as simple as that. Uh, I guess that, um, um, that generally speaking, if you have some facilitation, so one, one of the major um, I say pillars or, or concept of knowledge translation, uh, it's not enough to have the evidence, uh, and it's uh, it's very good that you have a local culture of of, uh, of uh, being able to adopt and, and change practices. But then you also need the facilitation or someone uh, on the ground which is there to remind us, uh, busy clinicians, either doctors or nurses, uh, that things need to be done. Dr. Bacchus, I was wondering if we could, as we're kind of getting close to the end of the interview at this point, and I just want to set things up for you to kind of take us home here. Basically, what we're discussing today is the difference between an inability, if there is consensus in the critical care community about a practice, getting that actually implemented at the bedside, versus where there may be a genuine controversy 
and whether or not it should then be practiced. And we're talking about early adopters versus people who are really waiting for the literature to prove itself. And, and I, you know, I think there may be room for both kinds of, of practitioners. Um, so maybe, and as you reemphasized before, perhaps a component of this is due to our current CME system. So if you'd like to uh, discuss any of these issues, that'd be great. Um, what I would say is that um, the real challenge, I think, is the translation of uh, interventions that have been demonstrated to be of benefit to the bedside, to, uh, moving these things from the research to the bedside. Um, and things that are a bit controversial, I think, is a separate issue. But the most challenging thing is where you have a practice that you know makes a difference and uh, and yet you find that a reasonable percent of physicians, very good physicians, for one reason or another, are not uh, implementing. And uh, as has been mentioned several times, there are, there are many reasons why. Physicians are busy, uh, they're focusing on the acute problem, um, and they get distracted. And so how to change that is, um, I, I think, ma there are many ways to approach changing it. One is by having these specialty services w who remind physicians of what needs to be done. Another, I think, is having uh, a more uh, continuing education uh, program where physicians not only hear about things in lectures, but actually we present them with clinical scenarios and see if they remember in real life to do things either uh, through simulators, through computer programs, or some other active way of learning. Uh, having physicians review all of their patients' charts retrospectively to see if they did something and coming up with their own improvement plan has also been effective. The ABIM uh, has done this as, as part of the recertification process and finds that 98% uh, of the people who had participated felt that they'd met their learning objectives. So there may be many ways to do it, but I think that's probably the, the first challenge that needs to be faced is that it that is taking something that has been demonstrated to be of benefit and getting all of the practitioners to adopt that practice. Um, I think we're uh, sort of near the end of our time today. I'm very grateful to have our two discussants today. We've been speaking with Dr. Carolyn Beckus. She is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and is currently senior vice president of academic affairs at Cooper Health System in Camden, New Jersey. And we've been speaking with Dr. Roy Elan, who is the lead author on the article, who is currently in the uh, Department of Internal Medicine at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. And we have been talking about knowledge translation in critical care, factors associated with prescription of commonly recommended best practices for critically ill patients, trying to shed some light on what can be a very challenging part of the practice of critical care medicine. Thank you very much for being with us today. This concludes our podcast for Wednesday, July 25th, 2007. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. A new email subscription service will let you know when new podcasts have been posted to the SCCM website. Visit www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, 
offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. As a general study rule, practitioners should start preparing intensively for their board exams at least one year in advance. Register today for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Adult and Pediatric Multiprofessional Critical Care Review Courses to be held August 7th through 11th, 2007 in Chicago, Illinois, USA. As a registered participant of a review course, you'll receive a free study aid worth $175. In addition, you can enhance your board review by registering for one of two pre-courses, the ABIM Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review or the Rapid Response System Training. Build a solid foundation and further your study efforts with the only multi-professional association that focuses solely on critical care. Register today by visiting www.sccm.org or calling 1-847-827-6888.